they can't really get beyond Trump. And so in DeSantis' case, he's trying to out-Trump Trump by becoming the most violent thug possible. Where, where I mean, he, without Trump, we would not have a DeSantis who said, on day one, we're going to be slitting throats. I mean, who says that? Like, you know who says that? The people I study. Uh, right. The Putins, you know, he, Putin talked about slitting throats or these junta leaders. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aaron Rukar Show. Today, I'm going to be joined by Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Ruth is one of the country's foremost uh, experts on authoritarianism. She's a professor at New York University. Uh, she recently authored a book called Strongmen that really unpacks 20th century authoritarianism through the lens of strongmen. Uh, she talks about everybody from Putin to Orban to military coups in Africa. So it's a great book. And um, she also uh, shares a lot of her research and her scholarship in more kind of short form writing on her Substack called Lucid. Uh, she actually had a piece just earlier this week on how strongmen do not debate, um, you know, kind of putting that in the context of Trump here in the States, who is not participating in tonight's uh, Fox News debate, the very first one of the Republican cycle. And so she and I do get into that a little bit, but we also kind of take uh, more of a zoom out, talk about the factors that led to Trump's rise in the first place and how she foresees Trumpism ending, you know, whether whether that be through a political means or a legal means. Uh, so before we get to that interview, I just want to also mention that next week I will be talking with Melissa Hortman. Melissa is the Speaker of the House here in Minnesota. So we will be talking about the Democratic trifecta here, um, some of the factors that she thinks accounts for the success that Democrats have had in a state that not so long ago was regarded as being kind of purple, but now has really been dominated by Democrats for a generation. So I'm looking forward to that conversation as well. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'd love it if you hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. Please share the show show with your friends, colleagues, family members to help spread the word. And let me also work in a plug here for my newsletter, Public Notice, where right now I'm offering free trials to all new signups. Uh, if you like the conversation that I have today with Ruth, kind of going deep on Trumpism and doing kind of a 30,000 foot view on American politics, I think you will really like my newsletter, which uh, deals with these issues on a daily and weekly basis. Uh, without further ado, though, let's get to my conversation with Ruth. Hello and welcome everyone to the Aaron Rupar Show. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Ruth is a uh, professor at New York University with expertise on fascism and authoritarianism. She recently wrote a wonderful book called Strongmen that kind of traces the rise of strongmen uh, throughout the 20th century in Europe, but also in Africa. And then it touches upon uh, Trump as well. And she is also the author of a substack called Lucid that kind of brings some of that same analytical framework to current events. Um, you actually had a post up just yesterday, kind of unpacking why it is that Trump is not uh, debating. Uh, we're recording this earlier on Wednesday before tonight's highly anticipated uh, first Republican debate. I'm actually not sure how highly anticipated it truly is. And we will get to uh, a little bit of that later. But first, first off, Ruth, thanks for making some time this morning to chat. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, so um, I thought maybe a good place to start is uh, just a little bit of your background, which uh, when you began your career, you were writing a lot about specifically Italian fascism, uh, Mussolini, and now you've kind of broadened your scholarship out to authoritarianism more broadly. But I'm curious, 
When did you first start getting a feeling that um, some of the scholarship you've done surrounding authoritarianism might become relevant in the American context? We've obviously been uh, living with Trump as kind of a part of our uh, politics here, you know, front and center for almost a decade now. But when did you first start getting an inkling that, you know, some of the the research, um, just the thinking you brought to bear more globally uh, would be relevant here in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I, you know, I studied American history in high school, basically at school. And then I kind of switched to doing European things. And um, so, of course, I voted as a good citizen, paid attention to American politics, but I also was living in Italy for years. And so it was really when Trump came on the scene in 2015, and I saw video of him uh, at a rally um, doing the loyalty oath with his followers. This, <laughs> this kind of stopped me in my tracks, <clears throat> and I realized that this seemed very familiar, that this person was very familiar, uh, that he could be a demagogue and the way he was speaking to the crowd, um, uh, all of that. He reminded me of Berlusconi in Italy, who I had worked mm. on. <clears throat> so that that was it. And I was um, I was already writing for CNN, but only on historical things. But I had a, a foothold there. So I started to cover Trump. <clears throat> and I ended up covering the 2016 election. And that's how I got uh, into all of the, the things I'm doing today. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering with the 2016 election, <laughs> um, I was very much I was covering Trump at that time as well. Actually, the first job that I had in D.C., <clears throat> which was for Think Progress, my very first day was Super Tuesday. And so like I got on the um, you know, I started covering this stuff right when Trump started consolidating the Republican nomination and became a serious presidential contender. But even with that covering him like I was doing at the time, I still kind of fell into that trap of assuming that ultimately Hil Hillary Clinton would win, you know, watching those debates. I mean, I just couldn't wrap my mind around people, you know, at, at scale voting for Trump. And then, of course, we had the access Hollywood recording and everything that happened in that October. Um, did you maybe with your background and expertise in authoritarianism have a slightly different perspective on that? Or how seriously did you take Trump? Was he kind of more of this like novelty act um, that he was for a lot of people? You know, one other just thing I want to mention in passing as we talked just before the first Republican presidential debate is I remember the Republican debates in 2015 being like these huge TV events. I mean, I remember going to a yes. bar. And watching the one where Megyn <laughs> Kelly and Trump tangled and then Trump later on had misogynistic remarks about her. But um, there was kind of this novelty to Trump at that time that it's hard to kind of remember now that we've experienced him as president and how grave the threat of his politics is. But what was your view on Trump back in 2016? Yeah, so novel in the American context, but very familiar in other contexts. And so... Um, I saw him as this kind of demagogue and two things really um, worried me very early. One was, uh, this was a huge red flag um, when he said in January, 2016, that you know he could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and he wouldn't lose any followers. And from where I sit, this is, this is what fascists do. This is what Duterte did you know, in the Philippines where you promise you associate yourself with violence. You tell, you signal to people that you approve of violence, you are personally capable of violence, and this is the kicker, and you're going to be loved and admired because of that violence. That's the wouldn't lose any followers part. 
So when I saw that, I started, I was already, this was January 2016. I wrote a piece on uh, Trump. I said, if he gets the nomination, which wasn't going to be for months, he will have a personality cult. And I used the examples of Putin and Berlusconi. <clears throat> Nobody wanted this piece because people were like, mm. what are you talking about? You know, he's just like a clown, right? We, yeah. don't, we don't want to take him seriously. So I took him, basically, I took him very seriously. I was very worried from the very start. And then I was tracking the GOP because just two weeks after he said this, that's when Jeff Sessions, one of his earliest enablers, uh, kind of endorsed him and showed up at one of his rallies and wore a MAGA hat, put a MAGA hat mm -hmm. on. And that was the beginning of like the, the rapprochement between the GOP more seriously and Trump after he said he was violent. So that was right. another very bad sign. Yeah. Um, zooming out even a little bit further here, um, you know, also drawing from your research, you know, I think when people think of like the rise of Nazism or of Soviet communism, you know, the thought that a lot of people have in mind is that these were societies that were, you know, in the midst of economic depression or major social upheaval that had you know factors at play in those societies that could help account for the appeal of like kind of these radical figures who were promising big changes with the past and kind of a whole different way of doing politics. Well, I think when we think of the United States in 2015 and 2016, you know, it was a very different context where, you know, under Obama, obviously, you know, Obama took over um, coming out of the the Great Recession, um, or that was actually the early days of his presidency. But a lot of the factors were in place when he took office. But the economy over those eight years was pretty solid. Um, the jobs market by the end of his term was good. Uh, the point simply being that the economy, um, you know, was relatively strong. Society was relatively stable in those years. While, of course, there were factors we could point to that accounted for, you know, uh, people feeling alienated or global unrest, things like that. But what do you think accounts in the American context for the appeal of strongmen that's a little bit different than what we might think of in some of these uh, historical examples? Well, one of the things that was so interesting doing a book that goes over 100 years is you see patterns emerge. And <clears throat> the pattern is, you know, when do these people have an appeal? And one of the commonalities is that it's, it's when a society has gone through a lot of rapid social uh, and political change, but especially social change, meaning you've had a lot of, uh, could be racial emancipation, gender equity, workers' rights after World War I, it was workers' rights and the threat of the left, of communism, whatever. <clears throat> but even in like in Spain, where before, even before you have a coup, it's you, you like in Spain in the 1930s, before Franco did his coup, women had just achieved a huge amount of like economic independence. They had the right to inherit property. So that's one pattern. And we were set up perfectly for this because we just had eight years of an African-American president that many people never accepted. They thought, they thought this was the end of the world. You also had a female candidate, of course, Hillary Clinton. But during Obama's time, you know, same-sex marriage had been legalized because homophobia is a through line of authoritarianism. Women had been admitted to combat for the first time. In other countries, women had been in combat for a long time, but not in our country. So... Mm. All these things had happened, and then you had a kind of so you when when it's it's in our in the Euro-American context, it's white males, but it's actually 
doesn't have to be in, in other areas of the world, is when men uh, feel their status and privilege are threatened. And again, it's white men. If you have, uh, we are a multiracial democracy and people can't accept that. And Obama and everything that happened during his time symbolized this kind of quote, wrong direction. And that's when somebody like Trump comes you know, on the scene and scans the political marketplace and says, oh, here's, you know, here's a constituency, uh, white working class voters, malcontents. And so he brilliantly swooped in and he said, you are the forgotten, I love you and I'm going to save you. And so he created this big tent for all these people, all the extremists, all the disaffected, and it worked beautifully. But it's it's part, it's our turn. It was our turn to have this dynamic and it looks different every time, right? Um, mm -hmm. But that's the general um, set of conditions that lead uh, um, a population to embrace somebody like a Trump. Hmm. Yeah, so let's fast forward a little bit to the present day. And I mentioned at the top, we're recording this on Wednesday before the debate, but we kind of know how it's going to go, right? Um, we saw DeSantis's <laughs> memo um, from his super PAC, which basically encouraged him to defend Trump and attack some of the other candidates. Um, we know, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy um, is basically out there trying to defend Trump even harder than Trump defends himself. Um, Tim Scott seems to want to avoid even mentioning Trump. Same thing, same thing with Nikki Haley. And so, you know, we kind of have this bizarre primary that feels a lot more like a coronation uh, than anything else. And actually, I had a newsletter item today that was authored by Noah Berlatsky that was just kind of, you know, explaining how this debate is really going to be kind of the encapsulation of Trump's hostile takeover of the Republican Party in the sense that Trump has humiliated the RNC, uh, you know, which really wanted him to All debate. Right. He refused to do it. He's humiliated Fox News, who enabled him for years and years, was the mouthpiece of his administration. And now not only is he refusing to debate, but he's actually counter-programming with the host that they just fired a few months ago under very fraught circumstances. And so, um, you know, we're, we're gearing up today to watch this bizarre debate, but none of the candidates are going to attack Trump with the exception of some of the, the more fringe ones like Chris Christie, for instance. But how does your expertise in authoritarian systems kind of explain this dynamic that I think to normal people who haven't done the research like you have done or aren't immersed in these you know historical examples as you are, seems very strange? It's it's strange, but it's another symptom of Trump uh, being he's, he's he has captured the GOP at, by the way, a dizzying speed. We're going to look back and, and it's absolutely extraordinary how fast he did this, because a lot of other leaders um, like from Mussolini or Berlusconi, they created their own party. So they had an advantage. They were always going to be the cult leader. But, you know, Trump had to come in and and didn't even have a political background. And he still did this with great, you know, great speed. So this whole thing is uh, legible or understandable through authoritarian dynamics, because the fact that he's not there, for example, um, this authoritarians cannot really willingly be in debates because the whole idea of debate is a dem it's a democratic exercise everybody on stage is supposed to be equal and they are bound by rules that they didn't make themselves they have moderators arbiters it's like a you know it's it's a it's a set thing and and that's anathema to somebody like trump he his whole you know cult is that he's the leader cult he's the man above all other men he not only doesn't obey the rules, that's part of his charm, right? He's, he's the rogue, but he bends the rules to suit him. 
So he can't really, uh, without tarnishing his brand, he can't really participate in the debate. And in fact, in 2016, you mentioned uh, when Megyn Kelly grilled him, what did he do? He boycotted the next debate because right. he can't. Because ironically, these, quote, strong men, they're afraid of looking weak. And so I just published a piece in my substack uh, yesterday uh, called Demogra- Demagogues Don't Debate. And it shows how Putin refused to debate and, and also Viktor Orban no longer debates um, because they don't want to be subject to questioning. That's the final part of this, you know, especially somebody under indictment. But they're all corrupt and they don't want anybody to be questioning them in public. Uh, so for all those reasons, but he's, his shadow will be there. And the field of this very strange field of candidates we have just testifies to how much he's transformed the uh, Republican party. Yeah, for sure. Um, So let's, let's move ahead even a little bit further here, because um, I'm sure you're aware, you know, as most people are that polling of Biden and Trump um, were, you know, a ways out at this point, but it's pretty much neck and neck. I mean, despite Trump being indicted four times over, and you know, I think Biden has a, a relatively strong record to to run on this, you know, the next year. But um, it looks like it's going to be another nail biter, and and maybe that's not a surprise given just how polarized the electorate is at this point. But you have written a bit recently about kind of what people should be thinking about and expecting if Trump returns to the White House. You had a piece recently for MSNBC uh, writing that, you know, his this plan that he's put forth, very authoritarian plan to reshape the federal government is, and I'm going to just read a sentence from your piece. You wrote, quote, consistent with the 21st century playbook for authoritarians, tell the public how you set up an authoritarian state well before you get into office, end quote. Uh, you also wrote that, quote, this is from a different piece, I believe, but, quote, Trump won't leave the White House if he returns to the presidency since he will quickly do what, needs, uh, what he needs to do to make himself beyond prosecution, end quote. So very broadly, what do you think people should be bracing themselves for as we start to think more seriously about the possibility of a second Trump term? Yeah, so, the, you know, this this it's so easy to not take people like Trump seriously and all of these guys, because they're full of bluster and they are clownish, but the clownish is by design. It's easy to think that when he says, I'm going to destroy the deep state, you know, what does that look like? Like, what would that mean? But um, Trump has an army of people. Uh, and this was this New York Times article that came out about, uh, you know, the plans that they have to kind of, um, it's called autocratic capture <laughs> to kind of take take over the judiciary, especially because that's part of the playbook. If you have legal problems, you've got to focus on uh, reforming, cleansing the judiciary so that you will be free of problems uh, forever. And that's what Netanyahu is doing. He's trying to do in Israel. And there are all the protests because of that. That's part of the playbook. But I was very alarmed uh, in that New York Times article. There was a quote by one of this army of operatives he's got planning this out. Um, the former head of his uh, office of management and budget. And this man said, um, we're looking for pockets of independence to seize them. And so, you know, he, he will do a widespread purge of the civil service of agencies of the federal government, including the judiciary, but pockets of independence to be seized. That's the definition of autocratic capture where you, you, you fire everybody who's not going to be a loyalist. And and by the way, Trump already did this. And I think that many Americans have not reckoned with how much damage he caused in his first term. 
um, you know, the to the, the Department of State, to the EPA. I mean, these were like hostile takeovers back then. So he would accelerate this. So that's one thing. The other thing we could expect is uh, uh, a kind of acceleration of what he tried to do when he first came in. And this was kind of a shock to the state. I remember Kelly Conway, Kellyanne Conway saying, he's, you know, this is the shock to the system. When he came in and he had the executive order for uh, the, the so-called Muslim travel ban, right? And it was implemented in a chaotic way on purpose. Um, you know, TSA was not prepared. And this was the announcement that, that they were going to have a kind of authoritarian uh, shock troop, Blitzkrieg. Mm. So we could expect that, and he has a team working on this, to be implemented, but in a far um, greater fashion, because this time he's prepared. He wasn't really prepared last time. And he had Steve Bannon as his main strategist. And Steve Bannon is uh, an ideologue, but he's a bit chaotic. This yeah. time he's got the former head of the management and budget office. These are bureaucrats who know how to get things done. Yeah, and I believe that that gentleman's name is uh, Russ Voigt, right? Russell, um, yes, yes, exactly. Yes. Um, and I believe the the plan that you're referring to, at least part of it, is the the Schedule F uh, proposal, which would basically um, give Trump um, new powers to fire civil servants, kind of really without cause, right, or for kind of being ideologically bad fits with him. Which previously that has been a degree of protection that civil civil servants have had that has allowed them to serve across different administrations. Yes, the, there, there's that. And um, the other thing is, I I wouldn't, this is somebody, Trump, who has said he would, you know, like to terminate parts of the Constitution or whatever. I think that um, we could expect some kind of trumped up uh, way to declare a state of emergency. Um, I've written about that for MSNBC. Autocrats love states of emergency because it allows them to have the definition of authoritarianism, you you can, the executive can expand its powers. And he's just, uh, you know, thirsting after that, which is why, by the way, the House passed um, the Protecting Our Democracies Act, and it couldn't, it didn't pass the Senate. But um, it, it very prominent in this uh, is, is our protections uh, against presidents miss, you know, ab abusing their emergency powers. And they did this in relation and reaction to knowing what Trump might try to do if he got a second term. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the big worries even on January 6th that, you know, had um, leftist protesters been more active on January 6th, it might have given Trump, you know, that sort of pretext to declare a state of emergency and God knows what would have happened from there, you know, if he could have gotten the military more involved or, or something like that. So, you know, it, it was something that was even kind of floating around that saw in the most recent um, federal indictment for January 6th, where yes. um, John Eastman and other people that Trump, you know, that had Trump's ear were talking very openly about invoking the Insurrection Act, which would have given, you know, Trump powers to use the military to quell protests had he just said, the election was fraudulent and um, therefore, you know, we're kicking it back to these state legislatures and they said, I won, so I win. Um, so it was it was something that was being talked about, you know, a worst case scenario that thankfully did not come to fruition. Yeah. Um, and that that would certainly there's two things to that one very interesting uh, 21st century development, because a third of my book is about military coups. Mm -hmm. And I didn't real I didn't think at the time it would be so relevant to the states <laughs> like studying coups. 
But what happens today, it, both with Trump in January 6th and then the copycat insurrection of Bolsonaro on January 8th, um, if you can't get the military to play your game, um, you have already um, gotten together a kind of civilian army of thugs. So Trump's been doing this since 2015, signaling to extremists. And so you can rely on civilian army. And in our country, it's particularly dangerous because we have so many militias and our gun policies. There's so many arms, you know, armed civilians. And so that's that's the new playbook. Uh, but in this case, if you all, if you recall uh, around the time of Lafayette Square, when uh, Trump was uh, you know, repressing the Black Lives Matter protests, he staged this terrifying authoritarian spectacle where he flooded the streets of Washington with all of these unmarked troops. Do you remember that? Yeah. He had like he had hundreds of people and he called out uh, kind of, you know, troops that people didn't even know existed, like security mm -hmm. forces, like for the post office. And a lot of them were unmarked. And I, having studied, you know, Latin American juntas, I was I was very scared about this. This was this is the kind of thing that uh, was rehearsing something he could do in the future. So these yeah. are that's another area. So you've got the bureaucracy capture, the judiciary in particular, and then you've got uh, the use of force, um, be it paramilitary, be it civilian, be it the actual array of armed forces and law enforcement available to him. Yeah. Um and meanwhile, in the background of all of this are the various indictments that Trump has been hit with, two federal ones, um, you know, the New York one and the Georgia one. Of course, you know, tomorrow Trump will be on Thursday. Um, Trump will be down in Georgia being booked into jail and arraigned on the charges that he faces down there. How confident are you that the American justice system is capable of holding Trump accountable? And, and kind of the reason that I ask this is because even with the, the first federal indictment, uh, that's being handled down in South Florida. I mean, the judge presiding over this case is a very thinly qualified Trump appointee, and she's already indicated in some of her rulings in the case that she's willing to kind of put her thumb on the scale for Trump. Now, there's a different situation in the second one um, in the D.C. court with an Obama nominee who seems to be, you know, she's been historically more tough on the January 6th defendants. And, you know, it seems like she's kind of driving a more hard bargain there, at least being more fair um, than Judge Cannon down in Florida is. But you know, I guess my default after nearly a decade of covering Trump is that uh, it's like that famous tweet, you know, let's see how Donnie wriggles his way out of this one. And then he does. I mean, it just seems like he's really good at avoiding any sort of consequences for his actions. But what's your take on that? Um, do you think that the justice system is capable of holding him accountable? I do. Ultimately, you're you're right that um, that he wriggles his way out of things. And people who study, uh, you know, authoritarians, they it's like, uh, well, there's there's the phrase Teflon Don, mm -hmm. but uh, Silvio Berlusconi, he had over 20 indictments by the time he left office involuntarily. And he was finally convicted uh, of like six different things uh, two years after he left office. And here's the thing, then he was banned. He was banned for running for office for five years. And the same thing has happened to Bolsonaro. He's now banned. He, he was, uh, you know, um, it, they got him on election fraud, right? Or propagating election fraud. And then they banned him until 2030. And this is very important for people who have a cult like Trump, because once they're once they can no longer be, you know, the head of state, just they're legally banned, uh, they lose relevance pretty quickly. 
And that was the one thing that did it in Berlusconi's case. He did all, all the things Trump is doing, delaying, you know, running out the clock and all these things. He did them um, too. And he did them very successfully. But I'm very heartened by um, the resoluteness of uh, the, the American justice system and, and not only Jack Smith's office, but we also see that there are Trump appointed judges like the, the judge who, um, <clears throat> who dismissed um, Trump's suit against the CNN. And, and a piece mm. of my writing was cited as example number one in that mm. uh, along all the other people were uh, CNN, you know, full time employees. And then there was me. Uh, that was a Trump appointee. Um, and there's mm. numerous cases of Trump appointees who um, have, um, you know, stood up for the rule of law. So so we shall see. Yeah. Um, one of the chapters of your book uh, deals with the ending of these strongmen uh you talk about you know the demise that Gaddafi experienced obviously in <laughs> Libya you know we've talked about Berlusconi um some of the circumstances surrounding the end of his political career uh you know I'm sure you you know kind of like a lot of people in in the days and weeks after January 6th um there seemed to be a little sliver of light there that possibly Republicans were growing tired of Trump. I mean, you had the infamous Lindsey Graham Senate speech uh, late in the evening of January 6th, where he kind of said, I I've had it, you know, it's been a good ride, but it's over kind of thing. And, you know, McCarthy made similar speeches. And then, you know, really the big turning point in my mind was when McCarthy a few weeks later went down to Mar-a-Lago and kind of po posed yeah. for that photo embracing Trump. And, you know, that seemed to kind of get him back on side and, you know, created the conditions by which he ended up becoming speaker, you know, as kind of like an ultra Trumper figure. Um, you know, I had a few weeks ago, I had Simon Rosenberg on the podcast and he was talking about how he has optimism that we're only one election cycle away from the end of Trumpism in the sense that if this is another kind of clear loss for Trump, um, not only the presidential election, but some of the candidates that he endorses lose that that could be, you know, the end of him as kind of like the, domineering force in the Republican Party. Do you think that, you know, part of me thinks that maybe it's not quite so simple, but, you know, how do you foresee the end of Trumpism happening? Is it ultimately a political, do you think, it, you know, it's a political outcome or more of a legal outcome? Um, and, you know, what does your research and scholarship kind of indicate in terms of when a, a party or even a country in some instances is captured by a strong man? Um, how does something like this end? Yeah, that's that's such a good question. Um, and, you know, the you know, there is the example of Berlusconi where it was a democracy, but he didn't um, he didn't have a January 6th. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of in uncharted terrain because a lot of the examples in my book uh, where <clears throat> the dynamic is often that everybody around the the strongman, all the Mark Meadows types. Uh, the Michael Flynn types, he's not mentioned on anything so far, unfortunately. They go to jail, but sometimes it takes a very long time to hold the actual leader, the inciter, to account. But those, a lot of those are real dictatorships. So here we have all of this unfolding in a, in a democracy. So um, it's a little uncertain. The other thing is, um, it, it it's a very dynamic period right now because it was quite uh, indicative of something that these two uh, Federalist Society linked constitutional scholars just published this piece saying that Trump is uh, ineligible to run because of the fourth, fourth, 14th Amendment, Section 3. That was, that's kind of a 
big deal that the Federalist Society um, issued this, let's say. Mm. And and there's also contradictory polling right now uh, that, you know, his base is still extremely fanatic. In fact, there's a very interesting poll of a, from, from my point of view, total cult stuff. I, I don't remember who issued the poll, but it's recent that said that people trust Trump more than they trust their family members. Um, that's classic cult stuff. And that's what he's worked so hard to do. You have to have the, the loyalty has to be vertical, only the crowd and the leader and not horizontal anymore. So you no longer mm. trust your associates, your family, your friends, just upward to the leader. So there's that. But then there are other polls showing that, you know, Trump is uh, that that base is shrinking. And that a lot of independent or Republican leaning voters are getting tired of uh, of all of the the, the legal uh, stuff. Um, and and what happens to a party is it becomes kind of fossilized because, as you see with these candidates uh, like DeSantis, who's just he started out as a Trump clone, a mini Trump, and so they can't really get beyond Trump. And so in DeSantis' case he's trying to out Trump Trump by becoming the most violent thug possible where, where, I mean, he, without Trump, we would not have a DeSantis who said on day one, we're going to be slitting throats. I mean, who says that? Like, you know, who says that the people I study, uh, right. the Putins, yeah. you know, he, Putin talked about slitting throats or these junta leaders. So that's how we, that's where we are now. And then we have Vivek Ramaswamy, who is just openly, uh, he, I was on a Twitter space that he was in. Uh, I was listening or lurking. And he was talking about, like, we need to rough it up. If he gets in, he's going to rough things up. He said, we got to break glass. And I was thinking, oh, like January 6th, breaking glass. Right. So these, so we've ended up with people, with the party, um, becoming a reflection of Trump's thug values, violence, lying, corruption. Not that the party was pristine at all before. It's a racist minoritarian aspiring party. But uh, the, the purpose of the autocrat is to bring everybody down to his level and make them complicit in his crimes and make them just as de degenerate as he is. And Trump has done that very successfully. Yeah, and just a note on that. I mean, I, I tweeted about this yesterday that on threads, um, I posted a clip of DeSantis saying that you know, on day one, he's going to be shooting people at the border stone cold dead, uh, which has become this is he says this at all of his, all of his speeches now. But that actually got my account uh, restricted um, and I ended up appealing, you know, and, and I, I can't even really blame threads for that. I mean, you know, that is incitement, but I'm just trying to cover the Republican primary and this is the number two candidate. And so, you know, as you were just talking about, I mean, it, it's really infected the whole party. I mean, in 2016, Trump was kind of this outlier. And now it's like all of the other candidates are trying to to be him in that way. They're, they're all standing on Fifth Avenue and could shoot someone. Um, I also thought with DeSantis, truly, he's losing no opportunity to be a thug uh, rhetorically, because when the last arraignment Trump had, uh, he was asked, which is I'm sure was an annoying question for him, like, what did you watch the Trump arraignment? And what does he say? Here's the governor of a very large state, Florida, with lots of problems. And he says, I didn't watch it because I was busy overseeing an execution. So like right. every everything he's doing is is him and violence. It's it's extremely disturbing.
Yeah. Um, exit question for you here as we wrap it up. Um, there, there was a lot of talk, as I'm sure you're aware of, during Trump's presidency, kind of contextualizing him in this broader context of like global right wing politics being ascendant. You know, you had Brexit, you know, Putin, obviously, Trump, um, you know, uh, Orban. And it feels like we've heard a little bit less of that. I mean, kind of for obvious reasons here in the States with Trump losing in 2020. And of course, you know, this this has not been a good set of years for Putin with the boondoggle in Ukraine that was kind of senseless, that began at his instigation and has become a big mess and kind of destabilized things. What's your, you know, this is a very like kind of broad question, but what, what's your assessment of how that struggle is going between the forces of democracy globally and these kind of right wing authoritarianism, you know, right wing authoritarianism? Do you think that there has been some erosion of support and kind of strength on the author authoritarianism side, or is that too simplistic of an analysis? No, I, and I'm glad you asked that um, because, and not just right wing, um, if you look at what, what's going on in China and what will go on, um, there, there is a spread of authoritarianism. There are new candidates who are very skilled, who are young, like Bukele in El Salvador. Um, so the threat is, it's not, you know, it's, you could say it's still ascendant, but something else is happening and it's not being covered by the, by the media, um, as such, but we're in the middle of a kind of global, um, reaction, um, against authoritarianism because authoritarianism is being shown to be bankrupt. Um, and things are happening that like with Putin, um, this is why, uh, two days after he invaded Ukraine, I got a very familiar feeling from studying Mussolini, actually. And I wrote an MSNBC uh, at Bop-Ed that said, you know what, this is not going to go well for him. And I'm not, um, Putin is in my book, but I'm not a career Russia specialist. Yeah. And it was because I realized he's got a klepto kleptocracy. The whole society is ravaged by his corruption. And so is the military. So in his case, it's been the, the war in Ukraine that has shown people how how bankrupt and corrupt it is. And then in Turkey, now Erdogan won his election, but just barely. And it was the earthquake that exposed the, the total corruption and cronyism that extended to the building industry. So that happened. And then in China, you have, um, it's very significant that uh, those protests against the, the lockdowns, there were 79 universities that had protests. Um, there's a whole new generation that is willing to protest that this is a new thing in China. Um, and including Xi Jinping's alma mater, alma mater, there was a protest there. So I'm tracking all of this. And um, so it, there is something going on that is hitting at authoritarianism and exposing it. Now, our country has become like the latest front of this, you know, dire struggle between autocracy and democracy. And so the reasons these these um, all these indictments and investigations are so important is that they can show Americans the corruption, the bad faith, the lying. Um, also of Fox News, all the stuff that came out where, you know, the Tucker Carlson's and Sean Hannity's are secretly saying, oh, we hate Trump. The election was not stolen. So we're also ha we're we're it's like a, America is like a laboratory of this exposure. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully it will be sufficient to uh, save our democracy and not go the other direction. 
Yeah, uh, we'll see. And, you know, uh, as you were saying, Fox News, they, they were exposed as being extremely duplicitous in the uh, Dominion lawsuit. And yet, um, you know, it's if you watch it, I mean, it, it's amazing that Trump gets as mad as he does about Fox because 99 percent of the coverage is extremely favorable towards him. But, you know, they'll have, they'll have Bill Barr on there um, and you'll say a few negative words about Trump and it'll lead to an, an entire meltdown on Truth Social about um, how unfair Trump uh, Fox is. So. Um, you know, we'll see how that unfolds. I, I'm guessing the Wiggins will be circled if Trump uh, winds up being the nominee, which seems kind of inevitable at this point. But uh, Ruth, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for spending part of your morning talking to me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes of the Aaron Rupar show drop every Thursday. Please like the show uh, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your circle. Thank you for tuning in. 